Amen. Good morning. Well, this morning, um, Browers, man, awesome. That was a great video, wasn't it? Just to be able to see what they're doing. We, we love you guys, man. You guys bring so much joy, and uh, it's, it's great to see you when, when you're here. And um, Lord willing, uh, more of us will be able to visit you in the future. So if you want to talk to the Browers more about what they do and find out more about their ministry, then ask them afterwards, and uh, they'll be sure to share that with you as well. And then this morning also, just wanted to let you know, as we're, we're going to attempt to go through two chapters in Revelation. We're going to attempt to, to go through chapter 8 and 9, unless Jesus comes back before I finish. So, uh, you know, we'll see. Who knows? But um, read ahead for next week, chapters 10 and 11, possibly. And I, I bring that also to say that um, when you go really in-depth into any book of the Bible, but especially Revelation, I, I probably have, I don't know, eight, ten commentaries just on the book of Revelation, not including commentaries that are over the whole Bible. And you'll see different, uh, very, uh, various um, interpretations, and they'll bring things out. I want to encourage you to read on your own as well. If you go over to the Resource Center, right through the hall, there's just some different books. You could check out some of those books. And just wanted to remind you that that is there for you as well. But this morning, um, Revelation, and if we could bring up the slides. Uh, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, one of the things that is important is that we need to be careful not to spiritualize everything. Some of the commentaries are so interesting, and some of them are, are actually kind of comical because they'll try to give a symbol for every single little thing and spiritualize every single little part of the book of Revelation. I think that when we read the book of Revelation, obviously there are going to be some things that we're going to see right now through a glass dimly. Um, right now we're, we're doing the best that we can using the rest of the Bible to interpret the book of Revelation. The, the best commentary on the book of Revelation is the rest of the Bible because most of the symbolism is going to come from the Old Testament. Um, all that to, to say that take the plain sense, first of all, and when the plain sense makes sense, then don't seek another sense. Does that make sense? Okay. So when the plain sense makes sense, don't seek another sense. It's one of the, the key rules of biblical interpretation, no matter what chapter of the Bible that you are reading. So as we've come through Revelation, we realize that the outline is given in chapter 1. Remember that uh, Jesus tells John, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, um, he tells them to write down the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Revelation chapter 1 was the things that you have seen. Um, he reveals himself to John as the risen Christ. John knew him when Jesus was on earth, but now, now he saw him in this revelation of what Jesus looks like now. And then in chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, those were things pertaining to the church. We took um, seven weeks to look at the seven churches of Revelation. And then in chapter 4 is the last section, the things which will take place after these things. And that's where we are at right now. In chapter 4, we had a vision of the throne of God with the 24 elders and the four living creatures and worship of heaven. And then in chapter 5, we looked at the, the sealed scroll, which only the Lamb of God was worthy to open. If you remember, the scroll kind of rolled up in, in a, a scroll kind of, you know, this way. And the seals were like wax seals. That's how they used to seal a document, especially when it would be a last will and testament. It would be seven seals. So as the seals are ripped, as the seals are opened, you see that there's a release of some things that God does, some action that happens as a result of each one of these seals. And so in chapter 6, the first six seals were opened. We had the white horse was uh, power for war, and then the red horse was uh, um, destruction, and the black horse was famine, and the pale horse was death. And then we looked at the, the fifth seal, which was the martyrs, and the sixth seal was an earthquake and, and cosmic disturbance. And then in Revelation chapter 7, you kind of have an interlude between the sixth and seventh seal. So last week, we looked at the 144 witnesses from every tribe of Israel, these great evangelists that um, preached the word during this tribulation time, and then many other saints in, in heaven and uh, the worship that happens. And now in chapters 8 and 9, we're going to see that the seventh seal is going to be opened. And when that seventh seal is opened, it's going to reveal 
seven trumpets. Okay? Now, there are some times that, that people can look at this as chronological. You have seal 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and then you have trumpet 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and then later on there's going to be seven bowls of wrath. So you're going to look at that, and, and I, I really think that more than that, it, it's almost a Hebraic way of retelling something in more detail. So when you have these seals that are opened, the trumpets kind of expound more upon what that will look like. And, and you see that the four, first four seals that are opened all have to do with things of the earth, earthquakes or fires or different things like that. And then the last three of the seven seals are like uh, heavenly things. There's demonic influence. There are uh, things that are happening in the heavens and in the stars. And it's the same thing when you get to the, the seven trumpets. The first four have to do with earthly things, and the last three have to do with uh, cosmic things and also angelic things. So I'm giving the, you that as a background to help understand this as we go through. But before we get into Revelation 8, I want to read this scripture out of Ezekiel 33. And it's just based on the wrath of God. Um, in Ezekiel 3, in Ezekiel 18, uh, Ezekiel 33, God always has a watchman. What does a watchman do? Watches. Guards the city. Make sure that if an enemy is coming, if there's destruction, if there's something that's going to happen, he warns the city that these things are coming. And in Ezekiel 3 and in 18 and 33, the watchman is responsible, but once the sounding has gone out by the watchman, it's the people's responsibility to respond to the alarm. Do you remember when car alarms first came out? Some of you do. If you remember when car alarms first came out and you heard a car alarm in the parking lot, everyone would get up and they'd go out and they would look. And they would like, oh, a car is being stolen. And now when you hear a car alarm, what do you do? Nothing. You don't do anything, right? Because it just means like some Harley was too loud, you know, rumbling by and it caused all the car alarms to go off or someone hit the wrong button on their key fob and it just starts, and, and people just kind of ignore it now. And, and I think that sometimes the th same things can be true when it comes to God. And we could ignore God's yellow lights in our lives. We could, we could look at a warning that maybe someone else has gone through what we're going through and we look at destruction that has happened to their lives and we think, well, that's not going to happen to me. Or we could read the word of God and we could say, yeah, that's, that's so far down the road. But I want to read this to you out of Ezekiel. God speaking says, say to them, he's calling Ezekiel as a watchman, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? So God's speaking to the house of Israel that at the time was in rebellion towards God. And he tells them, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why would I? It's kind of like as a parent, maybe you've had times when your kids were small and, and you're, they're being disciplined, they're being corrected, they're being punished for something that they've done. And they look at you as though you're doing it because you take pleasure in it or because you, you hate them. And you tell them, believe me, I have no desire to have this conversation with you right now. I have no desire to punish. I have no desire to put you on a timeout. I have no desire to take this away from you. I have no desire to spank you. I don't want to do this right now. It's not like, well, hey, let's have kids so we can spank them. You know, hey, you know, <laughs> hey, Deanna, you know, let's have, let's have a bunch of kids and like we could just put them on timeout. And, no, that doesn't happen. Our heart for our children is because we love them. We want the best for them. God's heart for Israel, God's heart for us is the same. And we need to preface that as we go into this brutally intense portion of scripture, which is about God pouring out his wrath. Because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. His desire is that people would turn from their evil ways. So with that in mind, turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. And it says in Revelation 8, and this is the seventh seal that we've been waiting for. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, half an hour of silence doesn't seem like a lot of time. But 
if I stopped right now for half an hour and just said, let's see what that feels like, you would go crazy, right? A half an hour of silence. Heaven is a place where there is always activity. There's always worship. There's continual music, and it's not annoying music. Okay, it's not that music that kind of gets stuck in your head, and like, oh, no, not this song again. It's, it's praise and worship towards God and just incredible visions of things happening. But at this point in time, the only time mentioned in the Bible that there is silence in heaven for half an hour. It's like the calm before the storm. It's the silence in heaven before the wrath of God. But I really believe that part of that silence is grief in the heart of God. Now, it says in the Bible that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can grieve God. And before God's wrath is poured out, um, there are some of you that maybe heard this or maybe have said this to your kids or maybe your parents have said this to you. This is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. And, And sometimes as a kid, you don't believe that. You're like, no, it's not. That doesn't hurt you. This is going to hurt me. But as a parent, when you have to discipline your children and you have to confront them, there's a pain within your heart. There's a grief within your heart. There's a grief that you have to do it. There's also a grief that they have chosen to go the way that leads to destruction, right? There's a grief that they've made some bad choices and and you know that if they continue to live that way, it's going to harm them. The silence of God, I, I mean the silence of heaven, it says in Proverbs 25, 20, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. I don't know all what that means, but try drinking a soda with vinegar in it, okay? On a cold day, try taking away someone's coat. And and that's what it's like if you sing songs to a heavy heart. There's actually a book about uh, counseling and, and helping people through the grief process. The title of the book is Don't Sing Songs to a Heavy Heart. Because any of you that have ever been in grief or sad, you, you know that at times of depression or really heavy times in your life, nothing's worse than someone just like, hey, let's sing a happy song, you know, and they just come up to you and they expect you to just kind of come in line with them. And I think there's something that happens before God's wrath is poured out where there's silence in heaven out of respect and, and out of grief for the heart of God. The agony, again, of the heart of God is that Every warning has been given. Every opportunity has been given. And at this point, this is late in the game. This is the end of things. And as God is wrapping things up, there's a burden on God's heart and a desire for people to turn even at this point in time. It says in verse 2, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Remember that the shofar or the trumpet um, that was used to signify gathering together of God's people. Um, It was used to signify battle or preparation for battle. Or it was used to signify some special event, some special thing that God was doing. So as these seven angels who stand before God have this role, they're given these seven trumpets. It says in verse 3, then another angel, and that word another is another of the same kind, So another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Now, a censer is like a, it's a metal um, container that it, it includes incense. If you've ever been at a Greek Orthodox or maybe a Catholic Mass, you've seen the censer as it goes out and the smoke that kind of comes out of it and the incense kind of fills the room. You know, when you think about incense, maybe you think of just like those, those like it looks like a reed, almost like a, a punk, you know, during 4th of July that you used to light fireworks. And it would um, infuse a certain type of smell. Or maybe you have... Um, the, the type of ointment that is there with the, the reeds that are coming out of it, and there's this incense that goes through the house. And what this tells me is when we pray, it's like incense before the throne of God. It, it permeates heaven. Our, our prayers are not wasted. You go into a home and you immediately notice incense. 
if they're burning incense. You could smell that. And the prayers of the saints are rising before the throne of God like incense. And they come into to God's presence. And then it says in verse 5, Then the angel took the censer, filled, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. As the angel takes this censer, fills it with fire, and throws it to the earth, the answers of the prayers of the martyrs are, are happening. Remember we looked at a few chapters ago, the martyrs crying out, How long, O Lord? How long until we're avenged of this? In fact, I was just reading um, an article yesterday in, in Mexico, maybe last year or a couple of years ago. I think there were 42 students that disappeared. And they were just kidnapped by the cartel, and they still don't know what happened to them. And the government has kind of said, the Mexican government has said, well, they were, they were killed and they were incinerated, they were burned. But I was reading in this article, and they were saying that these detectives are looking at it saying, no, um, there's not enough evidence of that. And they, they want these things to kind of come up to the surface. And, and I think about relatives of people like that. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for justice. They're waiting to find out what really happened. They're waiting for someone to pay for the crimes that were committed against their relatives. And if God is a God of love, he also has to be a God of justice. Because if God is not a God of justice then evil just happens and people get away with it. If God is not a God of justice, then it's almost as if everyone is the same and, and the fate of every person is the same, whether, whether a murderer like that or, or whether someone that is out there like Mother Teresa. Can you imagine how unjust it would be if Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler had the same fate? You ever think about something like that? If, if someone that goes and... and works with people with leprosy or feeds the homeless or does these things, and they have the same fate as someone that is committing mass genocide. And once they die, that's it. And, and basically, whatever they did in their life, that was up to them. See, there's a justice of God answering the prayers of these martyrs. In fact, when we pray, Jesus taught us to pray, thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and in partiality, this is an answer also to those prayers. That God's kingdom, his righteous reign would happen and that um, God's will would be done. In verse 6, so the seven angels who had seven trumpets, they prepared themselves to sound. Again, not necessarily sequential with the seven seals first and then the seven trumpets and then the seven bowls, but maybe even more repetitive in a Hebraic way of re-emphasizing and repeating some of these events that happen. So the first trumpet sounds. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown down to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. So when this trumpet sounds, there is hail and fire mingled with blood or mixed with blood. I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if there's a, a, a color of red. I, I don't know if it's the effect of the hail where many people die and there's a lot of blood. But what happens is we realize that this, um, this trumpet judgment causes a third of the trees to be burned up and the green grass to be burned up. You know, right now, um, there are brush fires all throughout Southern California. Um, there are brush fires that are in the hills that are there. And if any of you have ever been in a fire or you've been around a fire, it just seems like it's all-consuming. And yet that fire is isolated in, in, in a small place relative to the rest of the country, relative to the rest of the state. But can you imagine if a third of the vegetation, a third of the world being on fire, what that would look like? I, I just imagine, I don't know um, what this looks like as the, the sensor is thrown down. Maybe it looks like meteorites. Maybe it looks like just God's divine judgment. Maybe it looks like lightning strikes. But just imagine a third of, of the trees on fire and, and what that would be like, just the smoke and the way that it, it would affect the rest of the world. And then in verse 8, the second trumpet judgment. The second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea 
and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Again, possibly an asteroid impacting the sea. You know, scientists say that if an asteroid hit the earth that was of any consequence of size, that we would have um, a cataclysmic disaster on the whole face of the planet. So you see that um, there's disaster not only on land, but you see disaster in the sea. And then in verse 10, the third trumpet, it says, And then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Now later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to see these two witnesses um, that are going to pray that it doesn't rain and it won't rain on the earth. That's why I think that one of the witnesses was probably Elijah because Elijah did that and he also represents the prophets. So Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets. I'm, I'm throwing a lot at you. I get it. There's a, there's a lot there. And like I said, if you study this, there's going to be volumes written. But there's some things I think that God wants us to know in the midst of this. As, um, as the, the sea is struck, in this third trumpet, it's the fresh waters, the rivers, and the springs of water. Sometimes people think, well, I'm, I'm going to move to Idaho, I'm going to dig a well, and I'm going to be okay. Because I'm just going to build a wall, dig a well, and I'll be on my own compound. Away from everyone, away from everything. Because I have my own freshwater spring. But even those freshwater springs are going to be affected. Even the rivers are going to be affected and the lakes are going to be affected. Imagine what that's like with fire and the water being bitter and the water not being drinkable. I mean, we're in a drought right now in California. We've been in a drought. But yet, I could still go home and I could turn on my faucet. Water will come out of it. I could still drink water and it's still okay for me. But what will it look like when God's wrath is poured out on the earth in this way. And then it says in verse 12, we get to this fourth trumpet. By the way, the word uh, wormwood means bitterness. Uh, interesting that when Chernobyl in Russia, um, when, when that happened, they, they now call that wormwood. They refer to that incident as a wormwood incident because the waters were turned bitter. In verse 12, this fourth trumpet is the stars, moon, and sun being affected. It says, then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, that a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. So imagine that a third of our daylight is taken away, and a third of the light that is happening in the evening. And if you look at these first four trumpets, what do they remind you of? Any other thing in the Bible? Darkness, the water. And the blood, you know, the blood being, uh, you know, the water turning to blood. The plagues. Okay, if you read the book of Exodus, these are reminiscent of the plagues that God gave to Egypt because they would not allow God's people to leave. So in, in these plagues, in these, um, in these judgments, these trumpets, what is happening is, all of the things that we think of as normal, regular, everyday occurrences that we could rest upon, all of those things are gone. Um, sometimes people say, well, one thing I do know, the sun will come up tomorrow. They say, that's, the, that's what I do know. Sometimes we could look at the moon or the stars, and one thing we could know at night, we could see the moon and we could see the stars. There's navigation that's possible. Or we could look at vegetation. It, it, we know that that there's still going to be food. Or we could turn on the faucet and we know that there's still going to be water. And what God is doing is he's reducing all of our reliances upon things that are normal that God has set up. Now we know from science and studying the stars on the planet, why do we have day, why do we have night? We have it because of this orbit, right? We have the earth orbiting around the sun, we have the moon orbiting around the earth, and we understand those things. But we just take for granted that those things will always take place in the same way. But yet, if God changes just a, a fraction of those orbits, a fraction of those things, it would just be massive chaos and panic around the world. 
And now we get to chapter 9. Um, it says, or in verse 13, I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In other words, it's going to get worse. And if you think that things are bad at this point, man, chapter, chapter 9 and then in the, the chapters after that, things are actually going to get worse. The fifth trumpet. These are locusts that come from the, the abuso, from the pit. It says in verse 1, the fifth angel, angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. Now, interesting, it says a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and then notice what it says in verse 1, to him. So this star is a being. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now again, the locusts that we see in um, the plagues in the book of Exodus, the plagues that happen on, on Egypt, only harm vegetation. But we're going to see that these locusts are commanded not to touch the vegetation. They're going to actually attack the people. The people that are in rebellion towards God and still the people that, that um, will, will not yield to God, even in the midst of this. Now, there's the phrase, I saw a star fallen, and it's in the past tense, this fallen star. And we know that it's a, a being because it says, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Let me read this to you out of Luke chapter 10. It says, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And Jesus said, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So we see that in Luke chapter 10, Jesus speaks of Satan falling from heaven um, like lightning. And I believe personally that when we read about this star fallen from heaven, that to him is given this key to the bottomless pit, I really believe that this is a, another example or another name for Satan in the Bible. Satan is not the equal opposite of God. Okay? He's opposite as far as his nature. He's all evil and God is all good. But sometimes we think that Satan has realm over hell and over the pit and he has all this power and like God can't go there to see what's going on. Okay, the key is only given to him for this period of time because God is still in control and it's a part of God's wrath. That even Satan is not omnipotent and not all powerful. That's really important because sometimes when we pray and we just blame everything on the devil and we think that the devil is in control we need to realize the devil is not in control god is in control and even though he's called the prince of the power of this air and we see the effects of of the evil one everywhere around us know this we do not serve an impotent god we don't pray to a god who has no power to answer us even in syria where people are being beheaded by isis right now even in places like that, their prayers are rising to heaven. And as martyrs call out towards God, we see that in Revelation, God answered these, answers these prayers. In Isaiah chapter 14, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Satan at one point was named Lucifer. He was an angel like the archangels Michael and Gabriel. When Lucifer rebelled against God, he took one-third of the angels with him. Can you imagine what would happen if the, the worst of these angels, these fallen angels, are pit, put in this pit, um, this abuso in, in the Greek? We realize in Jude chapter um, 1, there's only one chapter, so verse 6, the demons that are bound to the bottomless pit seem to be the ones mentioned um, here as well. 
And I just think of the demonic influences today. If you ever scroll on Netflix or on, you know, any streaming of video service, it, it absolutely staggers me how many of the movies now are just demonic in nature. I mean, by... Not, not demonic as far as like, I mean, I mean, if there's a movie about mass murder, that's demonic, but it's more subtle. I'm saying outright demonic. Advertises demonic. When, when I was growing up, I mean, movies like that come out around Friday the 13th, or they come out around, around Hall, uh, Halloween. But now there's releases of stuff like that on Christmas Day. And now you, you just look at how many things are, are out there. And, and imagine that when we look at that, then, then you just think about, what had just happened in Orlando. Okay, absolutely demonic in nature. We, we look at what happens um, around our world where there are people being martyred right now and radical Islam is just out of control. It's demonic in nature. And even if people say that it's not demonic, there's a deception that is there. But realize that a third of the most um, wicked, powerful demons, they're still, they're still chained. They're still not released. And you can imagine that during this tribulation period, if they're released upon the earth, how much worse that things get. Not only that, but I believe that the church being taken out of the way, how bad can things get? Now, when I, I consider this, um, this judgment, remember this. When we read about God's wrath, it is absolutely important to read it with God's heart. God is not willing that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. It, it's too easy to read the book of Revelation to look for who are the key players, who the Antichrist might be. What do these nations mean? What do these symbols mean? Who is this? Who is that? Without having a heart for people that don't know the Lord. Without having an urgency within our hearts to do something about it. We live in such a politically correct world today that evangelism has fallen by the wayside and people are afraid to share their faith or say anything about Jesus lest someone might be offended that your worship of Jesus is going to offend their lifestyle. But if I believe that the Bible is true and I believe that God is real, how unloving is that for me not to warn them or not to reach out to them in God's love? This is written for us. That's why it says that today is the day of salvation. This is written for us not only to know that God is in control, not only to find comfort that at the end of things God knows what's happening, but to motivate us to share the gospel with other people. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we need to be filled with grace and truth. It says in verse 4, These locusts were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads, as we looked at that in the last chapter. They were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. So these locusts don't eat the, the vegetation. They torment people. And those who had not been sealed by God. I really believe that, that there will be many during the tribulation that will come to Christ. But even during that tribulation period, there will still be those that are in rebellion towards God. One thing to note, whether it would be in the book of Genesis or in the book of Revelation or anywhere in between, God's judgment is always redemptive. God's judgment is always redemptive. The judgment comes so that people will turn. But people can still go their own way. And that really blows me away. Because you could do everything in your power to try to reach someone. You could try to show them the love of Christ to the best of your ability. You could pray for them. But sometimes we see that people that have that free will can still go their own way. And yet God is reaching out to them, even in this, e even in God's judgment. You, you listen to this, a third of these demons release, a third of the vegetation, a third of the waters, a third of the, 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 the darkness happening. And yet there's two thirds where God is holding back his wrath. So there's still this opportunity. And sometimes we get this mistake and people mistake that God is against them, that God wants to, to just wipe them out. In those days, it says in verse 6, 
Men will seek death and they will not find it. Suicide is a terrible lie and deception from the enemy. For those of you that have suffered the heartache of knowing someone that has committed suicide, you know that it leaves, it, it leaves devastation behind. And yet, the lie from the enemy is that death is the end of things. Before the Allied forces were able to capture Adolf Hitler, um, they, they believed that Adolf Hitler committed suicide. As though he was going to escape judgment or he was going to escape um, what would happen. My pastor, Raul Reese, before he came to Christ, the way that he had played out, he thought that his wife Sharon was cheating on him. He had a shotgun in his home and he was waiting for her to come home and he was going to shoot her. Then he thought about his children and thought, well, I don't want my children to be raised in this legacy. He was going to kill his children. Then he was planning to shoot it out with the police and commit suicide in that way. Until he hit the television and Chuck Smith, who was the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, was on TV. And he was saying, you may be watching this. You may be listening and thinking that you are too far from God. You may be thinking that your life is too far down the road of destruction and there is no turning around. And I want to let you know that that is a lie and that God loves you and God is reaching out to you. And because you are still here and you are hearing this message, it's evidence that there is still time and God wants you to turn and he can forgive you for your sins. And that's the moment that Raul Reese dropped to his knees in his living room and prayed to receive Christ as his Lord and his Savior. Understand this, that it is never too late for someone that is alive. So when we read things like this, it should motivate us to realize that the author of life, God, he gives life and he takes it away. That suicide is just a deception from the enemy. It, it is not an escape. God wants you to find life and he wants you to find life in the here and the now. It says in verse 7, the shape of these locusts was like horses. And I want you to listen from verse 7 to verse 11, how many times the word like comes up. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men for five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek has the name Apollyon. So first of all, let's identify these locusts. Some people believe that these are modern machinery of war, that it represents helicopters, represents army tanks, represents things that John was trying to explain in his in his scene of it, before any of these things came to pass, to the best of his ability. And that's a possibility. It absolutely is a possibility. I believe that more likely that these are just demonic. The locusts are demonic. They're demonic beings. And I see that because they're, it says that they're released from the bottomless pit. Okay? If we over-spiritualize everything, which I've read some commentaries... I've read commentaries that say that the bottomless pit is earth. And, and uh, in this bottomless pit, there are those that are evil upon the earth. And if we spiritualize everything, there is no limit to the interpretations that are out there. So again, taking the plain sense, I believe that they're released from this bottomless pit. And if they have a king over them, I believe that they're demonic and that their leader over them is Satan himself. The word uh, Apollyon and Abaddon, they both mean the destroyer. And in John 10.10, 10, it says that the, key, the thief, which is Satan, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And Jesus says this, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. In verse 12, one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Things will still get worse. The last trumpet here was considered so bad it was called a woe. But the last three trumpets are actually going to be worse. Now the sixth trumpet says in verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. 
So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Again, imagine wiping out a third of mankind. What are we at now? Seven billion people maybe? Getting close to around seven billion people on the face of the planet? I mean, when the Bible describes the Great Tribulation, and that's why when a preterist says that this has already happened and this is history, I don't, I don't see that. I see some of the tribulation that happened in that first century being a precursor and a symbol of what is to come. It's almost like a, a double point of reference. But in this great tribulation, it speaks of a tribulation on the whole earth, like the earth has never seen, seen nor will ever see after this. So we see this incredible judgment happening. And it says that in verse 16, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, and for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Again, the question, is this an army of demonic beings or an army of soldiers? China claims to have two million soldiers today. A two million man army is what China claims to have. Um, I'm sorry, 200 men um, 200 million army. And yet when I look at that, and that being a possibility, at the same time, I think that these are more likely demonic in nature. Sometimes people say, well, the breastplates were like fiery red and and China's red. Again, it could be, but I I think that it's demonic in nature, just the way that they're described here. In verse 20, it says, but the rest of mankind, and this is where we are going to, to finish up, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands. So imagine that if a third of the people die and there's these plagues and all of these things are happening, people realize that this, there's God's judgment that is taking place. You have 144,000 witnesses, these uh, Israelites, these Jews that are, are speaking, and then people getting saved during this time period as well, and the gospel still going out, and yet... In the middle of all of that, people still did not repent of the work of their hands. That they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Sometimes I find myself thinking that, man, if they would only get caught... If they only got punished, then they would repent. Do you know how many people in prison still are not repentant? Not all of them. There are many that, that, I mean, there are people that come to Christ. I know my friend Eddie Munoz, when he came to Christ, you know, he had, he had done those altar calls and he had prayed to receive Christ and, and he had many times kind of repented. But then there came a point in time when he was a third striker. And on his third strike, he realized it's life in prison. Every other time after the first strike, God, if you get me out of here, I will serve you. And somehow, over a course of time, he's released for good behavior and he got out. Second strike, same thing happens. After his third strike, he realizes that's it. I'm going away and I'm not coming back. And he said, Matt, the difference on that third time is that in prison, I broke. And I began to pray. And I said, God, if I stay here, For the rest of my life, I will serve you. If I serve the rest of my days in these walls, I believe that you love me and I turn from my sin and I'm going to receive you and I'm going to serve you. And if this is my place of ministry, then so be it. And what happened is that on that third strike that somehow with the prosecuting attorney, he decided he didn't have enough evidence and they dropped the case and my friend was released. And my friend ended up at Calvary Chapel San Jose and was doing ministry and serving at the church there. So we realize that God can work in anyone's life, but yet at the same time, there are many people that even though the consequences of life are great, 
they still won't turn. How many people do you know that are suffering consequences by their bad decisions right now and they're still not turning towards God? They're suffering and, and their life is falling apart and they're still not willing to turn. And let me say this, number one, pray for them. Don't ever give up on them. And number two, just make sure that in your own heart, that your own heart is open to the Lord and you don't get too far to the point of hardness where you feel like, hey, I can't turn back towards God. That is a lie and I just want to let you know you can. I want to close with this. Romans chapter 2 says, You are therefore inexcusable, man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. We know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And doing the same, that you will, do you think that you doing the same will escape the judgment of God? Listen to this. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You know what really leads people to repentance more than anything else? It's the goodness of God. It's the grace of God. Yes, judgment is there, but the good news is that we can escape the wrath of God because the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ. Jesus, when he died on the cross for us, took God's wrath upon himself so that we don't have to take God's wrath upon ourselves. It says in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, listen to this, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This morning, our application is simple. Number one, repent. Repent. This is not just for the person that hasn't come to Christ. This is for us as Christians. I need to repent on a daily basis. It's not a, a salvation thing that like if I sin, oh no, I'm going to hell. And then if I repent, write that, I'm going to heaven. And then I sin, I'm going to hell. But my relationship with God is bleak and it is dark and it is dry and there are consequences and God's hand would be heavy upon me if I don't repent. Number one, repent. Because it's not too late, no matter how far you've gone. And then if you've never received Christ, it's your time to repent and turn from yourself and say, God, I throw myself on your mercy and I ask you to receive me, forgive me, and God will forgive you. He'll accept you and he'll come into your life. Secondly, pray for others. Pray for others. Pray for people that don't know Christ. And no matter how far gone they seem, how far gone did did Saul of Tarsus, now we know him as Paul the Apostle, how far gone did people think that he was? There's always hope. And then finally, show and tell the truth in love. Show people the truth in love, tell people the truth in love. Because I, I know some of the things that are coming, and I believe that they're coming soon. I, I believe that we are in days that are are perilous times, and much of what I see in Matthew chapter 24, in Mark chapter um, 13, in the book of Revelation, in the book of Daniel, I see the beginnings of many of these things happening right now all around us. And yet that's not for me to read it in some kind of escapism where I don't have to worry anymore. I should read that with an urgency to say, God, these are the beginning of birth pangs, and we see them happen more in frequency and more in severity. And because we see them happen more in frequency and more in severity, then we know that there's a conclusion that is coming. And how much more should we be all about the Lord's business? You know, we just watched a video of daily life in Peru. And, and I, I encourage you guys as well to keep at it. Because if you live in a place for five years, ten years, after a while, that can just be normal, that this is just home, this is just a lifestyle, and forgetting we're here on a mission. But for those of us that live in the United States, in our culture, we need to be all about it and realize if, if we just saw a video of people going to the store and, and skate parks and going to places and wherever you are being a witness, don't compartmentalize your life 
so that Sunday is when I come to church and I just live my secular life going to school and work and that's my own business and I do what I want to do. If you've been saved and redeemed, know that you have a responsibility to be like that watchman. You have a responsibility for those people that you love to share the gospel with them by your words and by your actions and to love them no matter how they respond towards you. You can't make them respond, but you are responsible. I am responsible for how I reach out to them. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning we want to thank you for the book of Revelation. We realize that these things are written for our instruction. You didn't write them for us to hide things from us, but to reveal things to us. More than anything, we realize it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of your your character. It's the revelation of your identity. It's the revelation of your love and your grace. And it's the revelation of your power and your justice. Father, this morning, we first of all want to pray for the persecuted church around the world. And sometimes, Lord, we only think about our church and we only think about ourselves and we only think about our nation. But our brothers around the world and sisters around the world are crying out to you, God. And we pray that you would bring relief. We pray, Father, that you would rescue them. We pray, Lord, that the gospel would go out and that some of the terrorists would come to know you and that they would, in a sense, become those that would be witnesses for Christ. We ask you, Lord, that we would realize that for those of us that are followers of you, that we are witnesses where we are. We ask you, Lord, that you would give us enough love to overcome our apathy. We pray for boldness to overcome our timidity. We ask you for security to overcome our lack of identity and our fear of how people might reject us. God, I pray for repentance, both for those, maybe that's the first time for them turning away from their sin and towards you, And for those of us that already know you, Lord, we don't want to continue in in ways that are going to bring destruction to our lives. We ask you that you would turn us towards you. We willfully, we just willfully right now open up to you, God. We want to repent of the lust that is in our hearts. Lord, we want to repent of the covetousness and the jealousy that we have, even of friends and people that we know. Sometimes, Lord, even the jealousy of good brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we want to repent of the bitterness when people have hurt us and we're just not willing to forgive. And we just want to hold on to those things yet we come to you and we ask for forgiveness. Lord, we want to repent of our apathy when we realize that there are so many that are lost, so many that are hurting, and yet, God, you've given us these gifts to use. And, Lord, we haven't been good stewards. God, we want to ask that you would help us to repent of our greed And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be generous and that we would be giving. And Lord, that we would worship you with our first fruits. God, we don't want our primary joy and fulfillment to come from any person that we hold up as an idol, any job, any situation, any dream. God, we don't want you to just be a part of our lives. We want to be able to say like Paul that to live is Christ, to die is gain. So Jesus, we repent of those things. And we ask that as we sing to you, as we worship, that you would draw us to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.